0: 90% of solar panels end up in the landfill. If that's not the most counterintuitive thing to the mission of solar, I don't know what is. But there are certain states that say it has to be recycled and certain states that say you can throw it in a landfill. So you know what people do in the states where it has to be recycled? They ship it to a state where you can throw it in a landfill. And this is not on the manufacturers because the manufacturers are my customers and they do a great job. This is on the people who are out there buying these at utility scale levels or to offset their carbon footprint. What is happening when you know a tornado comes through and busts up all these modules? Where are they going? You know, at some point, these those type of questions have to be answered. And it's not just with solar. You go get a happy meal at McDonald's and it's got a little battery in it that things use for a day and then thrown you know, into a landfill. Products are becoming smaller and smaller. They're having little batteries in them, they're having little toxic lead or whatever. And those are all gonna end up in a landfill because nobody's gonna pay to properly recycle.
1: Hello everyone, my name is Chris Powers and I wanna thank you for joining me on The Fort Podcast today. This show is an open-ended discussion and journey covering real estate, business, entrepreneurship, and investing. I would love to hear from you by tweeting me at Fort Worth Chris on Twitter. Hey guys, it's Chris. Thank you so much for joining me on The Fort today. I have one of my best friends in the world, Tommy McGuire, with me today, who's the president of Echo Environmental. Tommy and I go back a long ways, and Tommy's story and the industry that he's in has always really fascinated me. He is in the scrap industry, and I won't bust it up here. And I'll let you listen, but it's just amazing um, the amount of waste and things that happen in this country and around the world that we do not even think about. And Tommy is at the intersection of how we control that waste and we have an awesome conversation about it. We talk about him leaving insurance and making his way to become president of a company that was recently acquired by another public business. We talk about his little journey through business school. We talk about some of the things that have happened in his life that kind of changed who he was and a lot more. So thank you again for continuing to join me. Tommy McGuire, welcome to the show. Thank you, Chris. Thanks for coming over to Fort Worth today to chat with me. You bet. Rainy day on thirty. Let's start uh, with a little bit about who Tommy is and your journey to where you are today. All right. You want me to me to start? You go.
0: I thought you it's did your, all the research. It's your story. All I've right. got your research right here. So, Tommy McGuire, I uh, currently run a company called Echo Environmental. But starting back, I grew up in Dallas, went to Highland Park High School, graduated 2004, went to University of Kansas, and then transferred to TCU, which is where I met Chris. Uh, graduated from there, went into the insurance business. My dad told me, you should be an in insurance. You know everybody. You're going to love it. <laughs> and after three or four years of doing that, uh, I hated it. I hated going to, you know, casina and Highland Park Village on a Sunday night and feeling like, Everybody was a potential client. I want to do something different. And so I ended up looking around, trying to figure out what to do. And I got into the scrap business as my (laughs) mother was not too happy about, but started a company that was doing electronics recycling back in 2012. And it was kind of at the infancy of it. And been working there for the last eight years and we've really iterated from scrap material to resale to repurposing to sustainability company was acquired last year we're now part of a publicly traded company so it's kind of the journey to this point
1: all right so you leave insurance after three or four years uh you're probably one of the best uh salesman business development people that i know to be turned off by insurance. Uh, yeah, it's a tough thing to sell. Uh, yeah, now it is. I mean, and you cut your teeth doing it and yeah. you get a lot of no's. And I think
0: had I gone a different route and maybe learned, you know, on the carrier side or something and understood what I was selling, it might've been more <laughs> interesting to me, but to go approach, you know, 50 year old men who have built a business their whole life and say, hey, buy insurance from me. And I'm not really sure what the policies are or the premiums are, you know, it was, it was a great learning experience. And everybody says I'm a great salesperson, but I don't necessarily think that's true. I think I'm great at understanding opportunity and figuring out how to, you know, zig and zag and achieve what a customer needs. But the actual getting out there and grinding, you know, making the calls, that's really not as much my personality. And I, I figure that out, you know, via the insurance business.
1: Yeah, I would say you are just like a natural born, like, your connector, everybody loves you. People gravitate towards you, like you said. You know how to move pieces around. You're just kind of a natural salesperson.
0: Yeah, no, and it and it works really well for the role I'm in now. Um, you know, focusing more on looking over our business, kind of running it. And I I did learn that I loved operations and understanding how things work and figuring out what customers need, kind of closing the sale with our business development team. But then going in and and figuring out from the operations side, how we make this work, you know, and what pieces we need in place, what technology we need, you know, what resources we need, to make this work for our customers.
1: We're gonna take a journey from 2012 entering the scrap business to where you are today, but how do you define the scrap business? Like what did that look like when you joined in 2012 and what was your position at the time? Um, So when
0: I joined Echo Environmental, it was actually part of another company that a bunch of our friends worked at called NTR Metals and they were in the gold business. And you you saw all the We Buy Golds all across the country, you know, in every corner, We Buy Gold, We Buy Gold. Uh, So all those folks would buy gold and then sell it to the refinery that this company had. Uh, And they were trying to figure out how to get more precious metal units after everyone had kind of gone through all their grandmother's gold, sold it all (laughs) off. And, (laughs) you know, there was this plateau. And, you know, I think from 2008 to 2011 or 12, there was just this huge run of all this scrap gold and it started to plateau. So the company said, Hey, you know, where else we've got these relationships with with refiners overseas? Where are precious metals contained in other areas? And it ends up, you know, circuit boards have precious metals in them. So they said, why don't we start a division that goes out, gets circuit boards, refines those, sends them to these smelters overseas, and uh, you know we kind of use our leverage to do that. And so when I came on board, there wasn't even a name for the company. You know, nothing was kind of established they had told me we're going out to get circuit boards. And I remember my first sale, I, I came into the business just as a business development salesperson. My first sale, I, I got a guy down in Austin who had 50 pounds of circuit boards. And, you know, now we're doing hundreds of thousands of pounds a day. But at the time, you know, I closed a deal and got a guy with 50 pounds to send it up to us. And it was pretty exciting, so.
1: Where does scrap come from?
0: Um, So... When most people think of scrap, they think of the, you know, the scrap yard that they see on the side of the road with all the heaps of metal. Uh, That's not really the business we're in. We're more into the precious metal bearing, or we started in the precious metal bearing business, but literally anything, cell phones, desktops, laptops, military equipment, aviation, anything that has a circuit board in it, the older it is, the more valuable it probably is. Why? That, because the value of gold was less. Ah. 20, 30 years ago, gold's two $300 an ounce, now it's 2000 an ounce, so they could use it as an alloy to cake onto these circuit boards ah, back in the day.
1: So there was more gold in circuit boards back in the day than there are being put into circuit boards today. Yeah, if you think about it, a circuit board, you know, 20
0: years ago, it's got a bunch of gold in it, and today they're finding other alloys that they can use, and we're discarding stuff a lot more frequently So if it breaks or they got to replace it, they're not as worried. So they're not caking it in gold today as they were before. They still will in aviation or, you know, military stuff that has to be perfect. Semiconductors, things like that. But in your typical electronic, the stuff that's going to probably get tossed out in six months, they just want it to work for a certain amount of time you know, that
1: obsolescence is good for them because you go out and buy something else. So I'm trying to paint a picture for somebody listening, like how much scrap and circuit boards is created in America each year? Not necessarily how much goes to your facility, but like, I remember the first time you told me like, yeah, when IBM gets all new computers, they send their old 20,000 computers to a scrap yard. And those are like, how much scrap do we create every year? Man. You would think I would know this. I've
0: I've looked at it and read it tons of times. It's really hard to know because so much of it ends up in a landfill. And, you know, but there are hundreds of millions of pounds of electronics, uh, I would say, in the United States every year that are being discarded. Some of them are going down proper channels to folks like us. But a lot of them, you know, are ending up in the trash or getting sold to somebody who's, you know, giving you a little bit of a better price. And they're pulling the good stuff out of it, throwing the rest, you know, into a landfill. The, the largest customer out there for us would be the American public because everybody's got two or three phones in their drawer and doesn't really know what to do with them. You feel bad throwing away batteries. You feel bad throwing away a cell phone because it might also have information on it or a hard drive, but there's really nowhere to go to take it. Yep. And so trying to figure that out would be interesting. Yeah. you know, We've talked to municipalities and different groups about how we could manage that, um, but it's not... Not as attractive of, you know, it's it's kind of like the we buy gold. You kind of go get all of those and then then you're done. We're right. looking for more sustainable products, sustainable business, things that are going to last over time.
1: So like a great customer for you is like a, a direct TV or a charter that's constantly getting rid of like old boxes. Right.
0: Yeah. So, you know, pretty much we're it's a very odd thing, but we're the largest uh, cable box recycler probably in the nation. So we've got a disassembly team that does 100,000 pounds of cable boxes a day. So when you take your cable box to UPS and ship it back, it goes to a 3PL who lots it together. If the cable boxes are good and can go back out to a customer, they stay there. If they're bad, they come to us.
1: Okay, so those sh- that 100,000 pounds shows up on an eight- 18-wheeler every day. It's dumped in your facility. And then what are y'all trying to do with all those cable boxes that showed up? So... Whether it's a cable box, whether it's a solar panel, whether it's desktop, laptop,
0: whether it's, you know, something that we're having to charge to take that has a battery in it. You know, the first thing for us is nothing goes into a landfill. Everything for us is we're we're focused around sustainability and doing what's right, you know, for the environment and for our customers. And that's what they pay us for. If you're looking for the cheapest option, it's not going to be us because we're going to do it right. We're going to do it here. You know, we compete with people who have 5000 square feet. And two guys there, they bring it in, they put it in an ocean container, it goes to China. We've got 150 employees under 180,000 square feet, massive shredders, disassembly lines. So that product comes in, uh, it's received in by weights, so our customers get verification of what they send in. And then if they require it, we'll serialize every single asset so that they know we got it. And then we've got teams of six that sit and dismantle and take every piece apart and we get granular down to the commodity. So circuit boards, steel, plastic, aluminum, battery, everything gets separated out and goes to the proper downstream for recycling.
1: Is that like people have like little tools and they're pulling it apart? Or are you melting it? And somehow through science, all the alloys end up in their own little jar? Or no, whatever? no, no. So everybody. So the cool thing is what we've determined
0: through a lot of, you know, kind of not research, but just a lot of work is we've created teams of six and we've created pallets per day that they need to process. And so we say, you know, if you do 10 pallets per day, you make $10 an hour. If you do 12 pallets per day, you make $12 an hour, 15, 18, 20, however many you can do. And so it really motivates these teams to process the product as quickly as they can, as efficiently as they can within the KPIs you know that we've set. So they have tools They've got systems. They know if we're doing cable boxes or desktops or laptops or whatever it is, they know what they need, how they need, and how they quickly process it.
1: And when you're breaking down the same circuit board, this might be a dumb question, but if you have two charter boxes that came in and you break them both down, are you usually getting the same exact amount of everything in every charter box? Or do you realize that like some are built differently than others?
0: Yeah, so that's a good question. Yeah, they're all built. It's different because you'll see, you know, there's that silver Motorola cable cable box that everybody's had in their house and most of the providers have had it. That one's pretty easy. Uh, And most of them have hard drives in them. And so we're extracting those hard drives. We actually take those hard drives and we wipe them, get all the data off them and resell those as a credit back to the customer for the recycling that we have to do. So if they allow us anything resellable, we'll pull out. But there are, you know, dozens of different types of cable boxes from a single company that come through and we're having to have different tools. There's different precious metal quantities in each of the circuit boards. And so we're having to lot them and refine them independently to get the best
1: value out of it. Okay. And once they've been broken down and they've been broken out into all their parts, are you that now reselling all those parts to like who's buying that stuff from you?
0: So everything that comes through us is going to an, an end process or a mill or refinery, you know, a wire chopper, someone like that. That's what also differentiates us. We don't get stuff in, sort through, take the stuff that's easy, recycled stuff that's hard, send that to somebody else. Everything gets disassembled in our place, gets shredded. The steel goes to a steel mill down in Midlothian, Texas. The aluminum goes to an aluminum mill. Well, it goes to an aggregator of aluminum that sends it to mills all across the country. Same with the copper, and all the circuit boards actually get shredded and lotted based on
1: precious metal content and sent to Japan for refining. And does, like, once you pull copper out of a circuit board and they go refine it, like, is the copper always as useful? the second, third, fifth, 10th time it's used, like it's still just copper, right? Or can you like whittle it down to where it's useless copper?
0: No, no, no. Copper and steel and items like that, as long as they're clean, you yeah. know, a clean copper, um, you know, uh, like a number two copper, a clean copper, it, it can be melted down and there's always going to be some melt loss, but it's very limited in your steels and coppers and things like that. The interesting side of it is the circuit board. So a circuit board contains... Copper, gold, platinum, palladium, and silver. And so that's shredded down and goes to a mill or a refinery in Japan. And what they do is they take all of that product, they melt it down in a huge vat and they've got to add four to one copper. So if you have 100,000 pounds of circuit boards, they got to add in 400,000 pounds of copper to get it as close to a pure copper as possible, which is called an anode. They then dip it in a bath All the precious metals fall out, they pull it out, it's pure copper cathode, and then everything at the bottom of these tanks, these slimes are pulled out, and the gold, silver, platinum, palladium are independently refined out.
1: And then those just go to build new products that are like new circuit boards that are resold again. And it watches whatever. It's a raw good. All right. So you started in 2012. You came in as a business development guy. You, your first sale was like 50 pounds, <laughs> and now you are doing hundreds of thousands of pounds a day. Walk me through the process of going from a 50-pound sale to where you all are today and kind of your journey in helping make that happen.
0: Yeah. Um, so when we started, we were just doing the circuit boards, but we started to get in a lot more products. Our customers are saying, hey, we don't have the raw circuit boards, but we do have the desktops, laptops power supplies, CD floppies, can you take that type of stuff? So we started bringing in other stuff other than circuit boards and started to find, hey, some of this stuff has reusable value. And so we'd pull out a hard drive or a memory stick or a chip and we'd start reselling those. And we kind of decided we need another division that more focuses within that realm. And so we have Echo Environmental, which really does the scrap processing and started a division called ITAD USA, which really does our resale. So anything we extract out of the scrap that's resellable that our customers allow us to resell goes over to ITAD USA and then they take that product and they're putting it online, you know, through eBay and channels like that to resell it. And then ITAD USA started to get some of its own customers. So we would go out to law firms and real estate companies and whatnot and get their old computers and laptops and things like that, clean them up, resell them on e-commerce. And so that kind of became its own business. And you know, it's just kind of snowballed from there.
1: And so now as you sit today, you have Echo for Scrap and ITAD USA. Is are those the two main businesses or do you have anything else? So Echo and ITAD are the two main
0: businesses within that side. But from there, and it's it's kind of one of those things where whenever you see an opportunity at the next side, you know, we kind of keep going. And so as opposed to just focusing in the scrap or the ITAD business, we would go out to companies and say, hey, you know, uh, we'd love to take your old servers. They go, well, we're going to the cloud. So when we do that, we'll let you know. Or, hey, those phone systems, we could recycle those. They say, yeah, we're going to get some new phones, so we'll call you. And we never hear from them. So we started a third division called Televance, and they do services. So if you're getting a new, you know, if you've got an on-prem phone system and you're wanting to go to a cloud-based phone system or you're wanting to migrate to the cloud, we can refer Televance in to come and help you with those needs, so we kind of say from desk to disposition and everything in between, we can manage your whole IT life cycle from the scrap, you know,
1: to the acquisition of new assets and everything that runs. it. Do you have to have licenses to do all this stuff or can I just start refining circuit boards in my garage tomorrow? Um, well, you'd probably be poisoned if you tried to do it. in, <laughs> in your, uh, There are people that do it. I've done worse things. Yeah.
0: No, there was a guy in the very beginning who would come in and we call them brown hands because his hands were completely brown and he used acid to leach gold off of circuit boards in his garage. And then he stopped coming in. <laughs> I'm not sure he made it. Uh, his partner did, but uh, but anyways. But there are people, and that's honestly one of the issues with not properly recycling this to get on a little bit of a tangent is all the product that does go to a little 5,000-square-foot warehouse and doesn't come to somebody like us, it gets sent over to China. Yeah. And there's a 60 Minutes that you should reference to anybody that actually cares about this and put on the show notes. There's a 60 Minutes episode that goes over to China and there's this town that literally has mountains of old electronics that came from the U.S. And there are people sitting over open you know, flames trying to melt out the precious metals from these. The lead levels in the water are 10 times higher than they're supposed to be. The cancer level in children is eight times higher than anywhere else in China. It is a disgusting, deplorable situation. And it comes from people who are not managing this stuff properly. Yeah. yeah. And also that what we sell our customers on, you know, we work with big companies and I'm I'm not going to say to what degree or. What we do but the teslas and samsung's and at&t's and verizons of the world they trust us to manage their stuff because the last thing they want is to save a couple dollars right now on how stuff gets processed but then have something with their asset tag or with their information on it end up in that pile you know in china when scott pelly's doing his 60-minute story it's just not worth it your, your brand value is so much more valuable than the cost of of what it takes for us to do
1: our job. So your pitch to Verizon or AT&T is, hey, you have all these circuit boards across different devices that are becoming obsolete every year. Let us take those off your hands. So it's not a liability to you. Let us take on that liability and and do whatever we're gonna do till the end product. Right, and and it's much
0: easier with an AT&T when they've got old circuit boards that are worth $20 a pound to let us bring them in, refine them, and use, you know, our kind of economies of scale at the smelter to piggyback on our terms. What's hard is to go to a solar company and say, hey, it's going to cost you 50 cents a pound for us to recycle your solar panel. Or you can go to some other guy who's going to charge you 10 cents a pound, but he's probably going to knock the aluminum frame off, sell that to a local scrap yard and throw the balance into the dumpster. So, you know, it's easy when there's value in product and it's showing how you're going to manage it, how you're gonna do a good job. It's a lot harder to to deal with product that has a negative value. And you know, these manufacturers, I'll be honest with you, 90% of solar panels end up in the landfill. If that's not the most counterintuitive thing to the mission of solar, I don't know what is, but there are certain states that say it has to be recycled and certain states that say you can throw it in a landfill. So you know what people do in the states where it has to be recycled? They ship it to a state where you can throw it in the landfill. And this is not on the manufacturers because the manufacturers are my customers and they do a great job. This is on the people who are out there buying these at utility scale levels or to offset their carbon footprint. What is happening when you know, a tornado comes through and busts up all these modules? Where are they going? You know, At some point, these, those type of questions have to be answered. And it's not just with solar. You go get a Happy Meal at McDonald's and it's got a little battery in it that thing's used for a day and then thrown you know, into a landfill. Products are becoming smaller and smaller. They're having little batteries in them. They're having little toxic lead or whatever. And those are all going to end up in a landfill because nobody's going to pay to properly
1: recycle them. And like paint a picture of when I hear like a solar panel is thrown in a landfill, it's like, OK, it's in a how bad is that for the earth? Like, what what actually is happening? And maybe if it's just one panel, it's not that big a deal, but what you're saying is like millions of panels and circuit boards are going into our ground every year. What, what happened? Well, so,
0: you know, there are hazardous waste landfills where a product can go in, like medical waste. All, right. Pretty much all medical waste ends up in a hazardous waste landfill. And A, it takes up a ton of room. And B, there are products and commodities in there that do have some value. So like a circuit board... There can be lead content in there. You know, there can be mercury at times. Typically, unless it's one manufacturer, a solar panel's not as big of a deal. But any type of batteries, you know, that are in a product, lead, you know, all of that can seep into the groundwater. It can cause issues. And at the end of the day, it's more expensive to go out and mine for these minerals. uh, You know, the golds and silvers and platinum, palladium, uh, rhodium, iridium, all these things that are in there it costs more to go out and mine the ground for them than it does to extract them out of these products. And so having the right systems in place and putting some of the responsibility on the manufacturers, you know, if you're going to go manufacture 2 million pounds of some little electronic, there should be something in place to ensure that you're accounting for the backside on on how that's managed but it's diff it's difficult because a million people buy it right and then how are you going to make those million people manage it but you look at apple and i love apple but you know it, all the manif- it's very difficult to get in there and take these products apart and reutilize right. parts dell back in the day get, did a great job of making their desktops accessible to open them up to change stuff out to keep them locked longer you know but it's all centered around planned obsolescence. They want us to buy a new this next year and that, you know, the following year. And so we need to do a better job of reintroducing some of these products back into this circular economy to be reused as opposed to being discarded or, or just recycled.
1: I mean, what you said about like the Happy Meal, you just never think about that. But the little, you know, toy. shit toy that has a works for a day and then it gets thrown away that goes into the landfill. Yeah. How many things
0: did one of your kids get for Christmas this, this year that have a little battery in them that light up, you know, that are going to be used for a little bit of time? And like I said, I guarantee you, everyone that's listening to this, when you throw batteries in the trash can, you feel like you're doing something a little bit wrong. If you have your cell phone, you throw it in the trash can or a hard drive or a computer. It just doesn't feel right, but you don't really know what else to do with it. And right. so at some point, there's going to be so much of that that we've got to figure out as a society how we're gonna manage that. And and as these resources deplete, as you're getting electric vehicles and battery technology, you know, how how are we gonna recapture as much of that as
1: possible and ensure that it's not discarded in a way to where it's lost forever? How would an individual, if I'm throwing away an old laptop and an iPhone tomorrow, like how would I dispose of it any other way than throwing it in the trash? Like, is there any companies being built for the average consumer to get rid of stuff? There, I mean, you get a, you know, there's, it's a
0: competitor of ours who gets it, but, you know, you go to Best Buy and you can go and drop batteries or, you know, electronics into the little drop box there. But people feel a little bit, you know, their hard drive. They're like, did I really wipe it all? Did I really reset my cell phone? And the good thing is there's a lot of platforms out there, like your gazelles of the world and things like that, where you can go and trade in devices. But a lot of times it's just such a pain, you know, to figure it out. And then you go to GameStop and you want to get a credit or whatever, and they only buy phones, you know, they don't take laptops or whatever. So I I think there's a happy medium in figuring out these products that have value, like laptops, desktops, uh, modems, routers where some of these big companies, your GameStops of the world, your Walmarts, your Targets, uh, and we are actually starting to develop with those groups some trade-in platforms via online for rural areas or in-store and and creating a much bigger catalog, not only so that you can get some value and, and get a gift card to keep shopping in there, but also so that it doesn't end up in a landfill and goes through a proper channel of recycling or reuse.
1: If you're listening to this and you go to Best Buy and drop off your phone today, telemeco environmental sent you.
0: (laughs) Or go to Target and trade it in there or Walmart. (laughs) Actually go to Walmart.
1: So is the worst thing that could really that we're trying to uh, stop by this stuff being put in the ground is contaminating the groundwater is like is that the biggest risk of them all? I think it's I think (laughs)
0: landfills a lot of times have linings and things like that where there's I think it I think it's the fact that those resources that were mined out of the ground, that were utilized within that, whether it's some type of metal or some type of mineral or some type, you know, whatever it is, is now effectively lost forever. And there are talks and even companies, I've seen one in Alabama, who are going and trying to mine landfills. Now, old landfills that have been covered up, the The cost of getting in there and hoping that there's discarded metals and minerals and things like that within them uh, you know, because potentially a lot of the organics have, you know, kind of gone away. And so what's left in there are plastics and metals and things like that. So you potentially could go into these places and start mining cheaper than than mining out of the ground some of these, these metals. And, and plastics is a whole other story. I mean, plastics is, it I'd say, an even bigger problem. You look at, there's a, a plastic deal out in the ocean that's the size of, what, the United States. There's a truckload of plastic discarded Every single day into the ocean from one single country in Asia, forty thousand pounds of plastic per day from one country. I mean, and there are four or five other countries that are pretty close to that. You're talking about hundreds of thousands of pounds of plastic per day that are getting put into, you know the ocean that that need to be managed properly, need to be recycled. And so we work with some companies that are innovators in the space that are looking for ways to take product and pay and take a portion of that risk with us. We're investing in equipment and and different things to recycle plastics and to recycle, you know, PVCs and uh, a lot of different products that are right now just getting discarded. But these companies see the value in long-term management of those and reintroducing them into their supply chain.
1: Yep. God, man, that's... Uh... That's intense. And and you you hear about this ESG movement in America and all these ESG consultants think they're solving the world's problems. And all they're doing is saying, yeah, we're just going to outsource the same demand in the world exists. Right. We're just going to outsource it now to countries that will do 10 times worse with this, these processes, these products than we would ever do in the U.S. And somehow we're saving the world. I think ESG is like the greatest scam ever. Well, and it's funny you say that because our company of all, so we
0: were our, our the company, our our publicly traded company that that owns us, is called Invella, Ticker: E L A. Go get you some. Go get you um, some. On but,
1: Robinhood, you could buy a fraction of yeah. one if you needed.
0: Well, it's pretty cheap right now. Go get some. I don't know if I'm allowed to say that. But <laughs> um, but, but honestly, like we, you would think our company is like well, should be an easy ESG. So we're looking into it and understanding, you know, where do we really fit within ESG and and what value does it really bring? It's like uh, some of the certifications we hold. There's a, a certification called R2, Responsible Recycling. It's a great certification, but it's only as good as how well you manage it and how well you actually utilize it. There are some companies like in every industry that'll get a certification, spend a year doing things they're not supposed to do and then shut down and, and reintroduce themselves as a new company you know, under a different LLC. And so that's why just as much as we're out there pitching companies, we're looking for reciprocal relationship and companies that want to invest long-term in solving some of these problems, but also understanding the value of kind of being the first mover. We're working with a telecommunications company right now to recycle coax wire. So coax is, you know, what runs on the power lines and underground and everything, and it's getting replaced by fiber wire. But all of this coax is such a huge problem. And currently it's getting chopped up And being sent overseas or being sent to mills and there's a company who's willing to pay a little bit more per pound to recycle it for us to bring it in on a small pilot and we're spending hundreds of thousands of dollars on this equipment to be able to be the first to properly recycle this coax all the way down to where it can be reintroduced into their supply chain into coax from their manufacturer that they're buying and putting back out there and it's you know the largest telecommunications company out there and they see the value, not only because millennials and people are expecting it, not only because of the ESG side, but because of these are the, these are the type of things that companies have to do and have to stand up and say it's important for everybody else to get on board, you know, these smaller groups and smaller companies. And you see fines levied in California for companies throwing away electronics and, you know, it's a drop in the bucket to them and they go, oh, we need to find somebody to manage this stuff. companies that are really forward thinking it's really cool because they've got tons of product and it does not move the needle whether or not they get a million dollars for this or get a hundred thousand you know if that delta means creating something new and innovative the big companies that are willing to do it that's who we like to work with
1: so like you have a ton of tailwinds in your industry i mean everything's now digital everything has a circuit board everything has a battery what you were just talking about, uh, Apple wants to sell you a new iPhone every year, so you're not holding your phone for five years anymore. It's it's every year. Is there any innovation going that maybe is working against you, like they're trying to recreate uh, circuit boards in a different way to where they don't have precious metals and you know they're smaller and not as you know? Yeah. No. No.
0: Absolutely. And so that's part of the reason that we pivoted from the eco-environmental side on the scrap to the ITED USA to the Televance so that we can be selling into all of these channels. Because three years ago, we'd get a truckload of cable boxes in, maybe 5,000 cable boxes with a nice circuit board that's worth 2 or $3 a pound, a hard drive in every single unit that we could sell for 10 to $15 a unit. And so you're talking about 5,000 of those doing the work on them. You know, it's well worth it. The customer gets value out of it. We get value on it, out of it. Now we'll get in a truckload of cable boxes and it'll have 25,000 units on it with no hard drives or maybe one in every five units have a hard drive because now in your house, you have a main unit that stores it all and you got little hoppers around your house that are small little units that feed off that main unit. And so now we're having to do five times the work because it's effectively the same amount of weight So we're, instead of doing 5,000 cable boxes, we're doing 25,000. So we're doing five times the amount of work, five times the amount of labor. One in every five of those units have a cable box instead of every, or a hard drive, instead of everyone. And the circuit board contained in it is worth 25 cents a pound, and it's the size of a quarter. You know, so at that point, it starts becoming a charge. So companies that are used to getting paid for their product are now getting charged for it. And like I said, the ones that are innovative and understand the direction where things are going they understand the value of a company like ours and that we're doing it all in-house and that we're processing it all. But other ones, you know, might say, well, we were expecting to get paid for this. So we're going to find someone who's going to pay us for it. What they're going to do with it, it's probably not going to be good.
1: Are hard drives ever really wiped? Yes. So let's talk about this for a second.
0: (laughs) So hard drives are really wiped. I will tell you there was a merger of a, uh, or an acquisition of a big company here in the DFW area. And two of the executives had hard drives brought to our facility uh, and witnessed the destruction of them, a, a wiping and a shredding. And so not everybody feels good that they are. We have customers who pay us to destroy hard drives and they'll have us wipe them and then shred them afterwards just to ensure that they're properly managed. The problem is it's kind of like destroying cell phones or things like that. A hard drive can be utilized back in the environment. And... The odds after it's being wiped, so effectively the first thing that happens is it's all ones and zeros. All of the information is completely removed from the drive. It is completely wiped clean. Using the technology that we use, my IT guy told me it would be like hitting a golf ball from here and getting a hole in one on the moon after we wipe it to get any information off of it that is usable.
1: So So, impossible. Impossible,
0: except for you or Trent. Yeah, Um, mainly Trent. Mainly Trent. But seriously, I mean, it is they are completely wiped. We sell 100,000 hard drives a month from very large companies that trust us to wipe those and sell those. And there's a certain capacity that doesn't make sense. But hard drives that are, you know, 500 gigabytes and up have a useful life in another part of the world. It's maybe not here in the United States, but the hard drives that are wiped, the cell phones that are data cleared. We go through, cell phones get data cleared two or three times in a process before they go back out into the environment. Hard drives are wiped multiple times. We wipe a hard drive three times just because of the standards that are in place. It doesn't need to be done, but we do it just to really ensure that everything's done in a way that people feel confident. And then these hard drives can be sent back out and utilized all across the world. But so many companies at these data centers, you know, your big tech companies, they don't care. They want it all destroyed. They want it all shredded. And now you've got this mess of circuit board and aluminum and magnet that can't really be separated and properly processed out to be reutilized. That is a fully functioning hard drive that could be wiped and reused in the world. But instead, there are hundreds of millions of them every year that are simply destroyed because of upgrades and and the you know the worry that they're gonna end up somewhere. So is there like a
1: business to be created that has like a a seal of approval that when this it's like a JD power and associates for whatever they do, but it's like when this circuit board has been wiped, we stamp it and everybody in the world can trust there's no data. Like that doesn't so it we, sounds we like that's that. a huge business. No, no, so we we're just that. destroying stuff basically from a lack of trust.
0: Yeah, yeah. No, everything that is destroyed
1: from these big groups is from a lack of trust. And is that because they know too much or they, they know that it's gamey or they're just... It just sounds insane to me. It,
0: so if I tell them, it, I'm going to give you a million dollars for these hard drives, I'm going to wipe them and resell them and give you a million dollars for them. A company that makes $20 billion, the risk reward in their opinion, and they don't staff somebody to give them the odds on what that... It's just not even on their radar. Yeah, They're not even thinking about, hey, is this worth doing or not? And I... I I'll be honest, some, I don't disagree. There are certain decisions I make that are so low on the totem pole, they might not be the wisest decisions. I certainly don't run a $100 billion company, but there's some decisions that's just like, no, we just don't want to. Like We feel more comfortable with that product being destroyed. and And I kind of get that, but at the same time, if they understood the value back into the supply chain, back into the world versus destroying it, and you know, making Seagate create a new one, I think there will be a time when people get more confident in that. But we provide a certificate of destruction if we destroy your hard drive or a certificate of data sanitization with a serial number, the report, everything in regard to your hard drive being wiped for every single hard drive that we wipe. So we do give that stamp of approval to our customers and we are certified by a body, R2, to be... Able to do that, so you know I don't. I don't know. There's much more that can be presented yeah. beyond that.
1: So when you're buying from AT and T, it's their decision when they give you the hard drives. They're saying you must destroy them. It's yeah. not your decision to say no. We're there's somebody in Japan that would buy these once we wipe them. Yeah, AT and T wants them destroyed.
0: Yeah, and AT and T is does not want theirs destroyed. Just for the record, oh, but yeah. whoever, yes, whatever. I have just <laughs> I have destroyed. I I have watched in a. 90 minute period, $8 million worth of product go through our shredder that is fully functional Yeah, because a company just wants it destroyed. Yeah, And we destroy product all the time. There are certain companies that have high IP tools and items. And, you know, I get that. You know, when you've got a certain thing that you've built, a chip or a hard drive or you know, when it's manufacturing scrap or a semiconductor tool that's got a ton of proprietary information that your engineering team has spent all this time building, I, I get it. I get that you want it destroyed. I get that you want us to come in and make sure that no one else can get those trade secrets. But guess what? All of those materials we take apart to their commodity level and ensure they're they're proper, properly managed. And there's not nearly the need for a huge... 10,000-pound semiconductor tool as there is a one-gig hard drive. You know, those those I feel like should be out in the world. And I will tell you a cool story. We had a customer who had 150,000 hard drives that because of some issues, two-terabyte hard drives, they could not deploy out into the field. And so we wiped them all, cleaned them all, even though they had never been used, and we sold 25,000 of them. We have a, a group in Dubai we work with, you know, we're good at sourcing our product and managing our product here in the U.S. And then we have some partners around the world who have huge networks that they sell into. And so he was uh, in the U.S. and showed me a picture. And he said, you know, those 25,000 hard drives, those two terabytes? Yeah. Showed me the guys that he sold them to. And there are these guys, Middle Eastern guys, and they all had smiles on their faces standing in front of this big building. 25,000 hard drives that we wiped in our facility in Carrollton, Texas, are in the servers that manage all the CCTV cameras across Baghdad. They're in our facility. Every hard drive in the data center in Baghdad that keeps it safe, we write, wiped, and it's being reused there.
1: What happened to the rest? What did you do with the rest? We just sold them off. In you small just sold them off. quantities, but, but they needed twenty five thousand for that project. This a couple more dumb questions, but if I go on my iPad or my iPhone and I go to like clear everything, is it cleared? Yeah, yeah, it is. And then if I,
0: it doesn't mean that your iCloud, you know, yeah, that's yeah, still yeah. got all the information. For but sure. If you go through and factory reset, you're good, And but I'll if, still wipe it again if I
1: get it. For sure. And if I, and if I don't do that, but I just get a hammer and smash my phone, is there any way that that dad, like, let's just say I gave it 10 good wax and turned it into a thousand pieces. Could that data be pulled back together? Uh,
0: if it's an Apple phone, you know, because so... Uh, if something's iCloud lock, if you don't have an
1: iCloud lock, it could. Or so, take anything for that. Like, is, is the physical process of putting a hammer to a circuit board, uh, get rid of all your information? Or should you wipe it before you just go smash it?
0: No. Well, you should try and find somebody who can take it from you and pay you for it and yeah. put it back out into the you know ecosystem and not destroy it. But no, you always, every device you have, everything, you should data clear it. You should go through the process, uh, factory resetting. You know, a lot of times I would say, take your hard drive out of your laptop. If you're going to get rid of it, make sure that that hard drive, you know, goes through some type of data clear process. Because once a hard drive or the the, the memory, not the memory, the, the data bearing unit on there, you know, there's flash memory and, and memory sticks, but those are just more components that are functioning. The hard drive is where the actual data is on a laptop or desktop. So remove that before, you know, you send it wherever you're going to send it.
1: Has COVID helped your business because people have been on their phones more, computers more, more isolated, or has it hurt it? Um, I would say it has
0: hurt it. It's definitely hurt it more because people aren't going out and having somebody come into their home and change out their cable box. And so there's a lot less of that product being generated. People are working from home and they're ge- maybe getting a laptop who had a desktop, but there's nobody in that office to aggregate all that old product to get shipped over to us. People are getting, you know, new devices, but but all of the old stuff is is still sitting where it was. So, so no. you're going to have a flood of supply when I, the world starts. I hope there is a flood of supply, but I also hope that companies don't say, hey, just keep, you know, your, your laptop that you have for work for home and use your desktop here or people who ended up going out and buying electronics and didn't trade them in at the time. I hope that those junk drawers just don't keep getting bigger. I hope that people are looking for the right way to dispose of stuff. But look, the reason we changed from, we did like a hundred percent cable boxes four or five years ago. That's all we did. But like anything, you start seeing less and less of a certain commodity. So you have to diversify because in your house now, there's going to be a time, I believe, that no one will ever come to your house from these providers. Yeah, if
1: you're doing streaming now or Hulu or yeah. you don't have a cable box.
0: Right, but I also think your internet, you still have to have a box right now for your to have internet. So in order to stream, you've got to have internet. And in order to have internet, you've got to have a modem and a router or whatever. So there's still somebody that comes to your house. I believe down the road, there, there'll there be some type of last mile where there's something installed where your internet is effectively brought to you by a provider of your choosing that has some type of unit within a certain distance of your home that's providing you your internet. And so people coming into your house, the need for a modem or router, a cable box, you know, will somewhat be obsolete. And that's going to be people having smart TVs and things like that. But we had to pivot away from, they're called CPE, consumer premise equipment. So all this CPE product, modems, routers, cable boxes, all this stuff that's in folks' homes that we did so much of, we started to see less and less of it and it getting smaller and smaller and having less and less reusable products. So we had to start pivoting and looking for other areas. And that's when we got into, you know, management of, of obviously, the ITAB, but that's when we started doing solar. That's when we started, you know, destroying tools for semiconductor companies and spreading ourselves out a little bit more than just focusing on you know, the, those
1: high volume
0: telecommunication
1: products. I'm sure we'll dive in and out some more on environmental stuff, but I wanted to s- save some time to really more shine the light on kind of your progression through Echo. I feel like every time we've chatted over the last, you know, eight years since you've been there, you started as business development and sales, then your VP, then your president, you're, you're buying companies, you're selling companies, You're you, you got bought by a public company. I, I, the, I guess the question becomes like, and then you talk about, you know, your manufacturing process, like, dude, you were selling insurance. And then two years later, you're, you're coming up with ways to manufacture better and have more efficiency. Like, how have you learned all this? How have you gone from salesperson to president? Like, what's your playbook?
0: Um, well, I appreciate that. I, you know, I think a lot of it has to do with being on the ground and doing it for so long. There was a time when this business Uh, was a part of another business that was so much bigger, it wasn't even on the radar. And so to some degree, I had a little bit of free reign to go out and I effectively got about every customer. People came and went from the business development side, but I effectively got every customer that came through. And so I started to understand the product and understand what needed to be done. And so because of my desire for that customer experience to be great, I had to make sure the guys on the floor were doing what needed to be done for my customers, and since I was kind of the only one bringing in product, you know, all the stuff that was coming through, I knew what had to happen, how it had to be managed. So effectively, I was in business development and running the operations at the same time. And I was fortunate enough to be at a company, you know, that allowed that. There wasn't a lot of structure, and it wasn't in necessarily the best place. But you know, there was a time that it was up in Ohio, and they thought about closing it down. And it was Memorial Day of 14, maybe, or 15. And I went to the CEO of the big company's office at the time, and I was like, look, you got to move this thing down here. I spent three months, I found a building. I know where we can go. I promise if you move this down here, and the company was losing money. So I promise if you move this down here, I can make this work. I know the product, I know the value. I know the customers. Like, let's just bring it down here. Here's the lease. Like, I, I spent three months going out and figuring out where we could go and what made sense, just kind of all on my own. And I put it on his desk and it was a really long weekend. And Tuesday called me and he said, he's like, let's do it, let's bring it down here. So we brought it down we kind of got it all set up, moved all of the equipment, everything from Ohio. And I'd love to say I've done a lot of this on my own, but a guy, John Loftus has been an incredible mentor to me. And John has been very successful and used to run the the gold business. And uh, he met me and just kind of took a liking to me and me to him and his experience and expertise in, you know, understanding how these things work. And he's kind of got the same drive and excitement you and I do. Like, you know, everything's fun. Every, you know, he's there with donuts on New Year's Eve, on Christmas Eve, on, you know, he's got his kids working the day after Thanksgiving. It's like the guy has been incredibly successful. But because of the relationship, I think that we've developed. We've got this really fun thing that we're building and he's given me the opportunity to make mistakes and maybe not point them out at the time. He's pushed me to, you know, do things that make me uncomfortable. You know, I jokingly say like, if John has a suggestion that makes my stomach hurt, I know it's probably the right one yeah, and I don't look forward to it, but once we do it and look back on it. And so those, those stomach aches he gives me have lessened and lessened and I look back on it and now I'm making those decisions myself. And so I attribute a ton of it to having a fantastic mentor and someone by my side, you know, and it's not like day to day, you know, I'm being micromanaged, but it's also knowing that I've got somebody to fall back on. For sure.
1: Feeling like you've got a partner in it. Because when you started there, it's not like they were like, "Hey, come join as a salesman." It's family business. Like you're going to be groomed to be president. Like you kind of just went and took the opportunity that was in yeah. front of you. When you when you moved that factory from, or that facility from Ohio back to Texas, were people asking you to go look for cost savings and make this work? Was that just an initiative you took? No, that was that was really just in an. I
0: I loved the business. I loved that. I wanted to do something different. I wanted, And I kind of felt like if I didn't make this work, I was gonna end up back in insurance or I was gonna end up back. and And guess what? If the business had sucked and it wasn't fun, I wouldn't be pushing for it. But I saw that it could be something one day and it might be losing a little money, but with proper management and good people leading different parts of the business, we could really turn this into something. And it was just instinctual for me because it was fun. Like that was the biggest thing. I hated selling insurance. I hated the idea of cold calling and talking about something I didn't like. But if you get me on the phone talking about battery recycling or electronics recycling, or, you know, how can we do this or do that? Like I can talk about it for days. I love going into my office. I love like, because I've got a warehouse in the back. Most of the time I bring people through there. I went to, business school at SMU and the executive program. So I did it at night and still worked. And I brought a bunch of my classmates through and they were like, can we put that in the shredder? Can we put this in like, it's a bunch of these professional people who look like kids in a candy shop walking through this place. And they can't believe that I go there every day and like get to decide which leverage to pull to make this crunch or that, you know, it's just, it's so unique and different. And it comes with a ton of stress and a ton of, question marks and you never know what's coming in the next month or the next quarter and that's why building these other divisions is so important to create some type of consistency and have things to fall back on when the itad business is slow maybe the recycling business is better or the service business has residual income that comes in every month and so we can kind of have a foundation there but you know I I lose sleep more nights nice than I don't but it's because like I can't stop thinking about what we could do next or how we could innovate that or change this. And it's because of the freedom that I've been given with kind of that, that guy that's that's there to help me along the way. And, you know, we push back and forth on stuff and there's certain things we don't agree on, but we've never once had a knockout, dragout fight, a disagreement about something, you know, that was more than we could figure out, you know, in a single... Sit down. So I just feel very blessed. And people always say to me, "Why don't you go start your own recycling business?" I have no told interest. You that like ten times, yeah, you've told me that a lot. <laughs> but literally, I so I literally went from working at a recycling business, or a company that just did circuit boards, to building this into three different businesses. A fourth we acquired that does trade in. Being acquired by a publicly traded company, which John, uh, who I was talking about, is the CEO of. I feel like I'm the luckiest guy in the world because I have kind of my dream of a startup business, ownership in it through stock, as well as that kind of corporate feel to give our customers the warm and fuzzies. Why on earth would I want to go get 10,000 square feet and try and start from scratch? Like everything that I could imagine and the potential is, is all within this thing. And, you know... I feel like it's been the ride of a lifetime and I couldn't imagine myself anytime soon doing something else.
1: I think your your example of the Ohio moving that plant for like people listening is, is so important is some of the biggest problems to solve are hiding in plain sight. And if, and you assume like, oh, it's the CEO of the company. They're going to know that this problem exists. There's right. a reason they're not doing it. It's like, that's usually not the case. The CEO, there's not a lot of, you You see undercover boss on TV or whatever. They're not walking the factory floors. They're not talking to customers. They're They're doing, you know, what they do. And some of the biggest opportunities for people that are working their way up is like, dude, just go present this idea to somebody. It's so impressive when somebody comes out of the woodworks with this big idea that nobody asked them to do. Yeah. And people are maybe scared to do it or they just think, well, if it's not being talked about, then it's probably already been thought about. And it Mm -hmm. was a bad idea to begin with. But some of our biggest breakthroughs at Fort the last few years have been people just saying things that seem so obvious once I hear it. But I would have never thought of it because it's not in my day to day.
0: But and to your point earlier, who at Google has gotten the cojones to go up and say, hey, maybe we shouldn't shred all these hard drives? Yeah. You know, the CEO hadn't thought about Mark Zuckerberg. You think he's thinking about shredding? It? I mean, he puts a little thing in front of his uh, laptop uh, camera. So he, want it, so he probably wants all his stuff shredded. But still <laughs> at Microsoft, at, he'll take all your data. He just yeah, doesn't want you don't, taking don't his. Any. He's not a customer. Man, so we can talk about him. Um, but but still, I think that to your point, there are things that can be done in initiatives. And I've got customers who want to do really cool things. And certain companies are all over it. And certain ones are just like you know, it's it's not on the radar. But, you know, we're, we we took plastic from cable boxes from one of our customers, took it and completely sorted it out to its clean ABS plastic. And we made benches out of it that said I used to be a cable box out of their actual cable box plastic. And they sit in Pennsylvania and Illinois and different areas at their facilities, their own product. And guess what? That's kind of tchotchke and, and one-off But there can be an entire industry built around that true circular economy of, hey, Verizon or whoever, you're putting a new campus up. You need uh, handicapped parking signs. You need parking bumpers. You know, you need street signs, whatever. How cool would it be if you're already going to go buy them? Why not let us make them for you? I mean, we made stop signs and all this stuff, you know, so these big companies, why not use your steel to create Uh, the infrastructure for your new building. I can go take your steel, shred it, send it to a mill, and that mill can then make rebar or whatever to put into a building that you've built. And there are companies that are thinking that way, big companies. And I think it's cool as shit.
1: So we're in like the first inning of this like reuse your products within your own supply chain and business. Yeah. Rather,
0: yeah, I love it. I think the story there, at some point, the story is going to get stale. But right now, The opportunity, I think there's a decade or more of that story being really cool. And there being, you know, commercials and advertisements and and documentaries and podcasts about these big companies who are taking these initiatives and finding ways, because if something has to be destroyed, if a hard drive has to be destroyed, let's find a way to do something cool with it that's associated with your business instead of it just going into a big pile at a scrapyard. If a cable box has to be destroyed, let's take the plastic and make benches and put them at all your facilities or make stop signs at your new campus. Like, that's cool. And that's a sweet story. And, you know, there are people that are starting to do it and we want to be a part of helping them do that. And that's that's the thinking outside the box you need because so many of our competitors just are looking for pounds or number of assets or whatever, or value, and they want to sell this much on eBay or they want to recycle this much stuff. I want to build something so much bigger than what we even have currently. Like, Just doing circuit boards was fun at the time, but got pretty boring. So we got to add stuff. And right now we're doing all of these other things. And I'm thinking about how do we stand up this line to recycle coax wire to get a final product to go back into the processing of coax for our telecommunication customer that no one else does. There's a lot of that out
1: there. And those are the things we're trying to do. Dude, you should start a podcast that is like (laughs) focused on stories of how stuff is reused and recycled to get that message out there. No, and
0: there's a lot. And the cool thing is there's
1: chips and there are some customers that say, hey,
0: you can't reuse my whole device or my whole whatever, but you can't reuse parts of it. So if you've got a circuit board, this chip and that chip have to be destroyed, but do whatever you want with the rest of it. And we've got partners overseas who can extract chips and they put them into new washing machines and microwaves and stuff that don't need heavy computing power or into these toys that are going... You know, to wherever. Like, don't just destroy that trip, chip. So we got to make a new one. If there's chips that just create some function, some circuit that moves through them,
1: let's reuse those and put them back into new products until they can't be used anymore. Yep. Young, young chaps are gonna be starting to destroy their iPhones and, and recycling them into wedding rings to get engaged. Yeah. In honey. This was my iPhone 11. Yeah, <laughs>
0: <laughs> I want. I want to. Uh, yeah, exactly. I melted it in my garage. That's why my hands are so brown. They're brown. They call yeah. me Brown Hands. Brown Hands. Yeah. But no, it's. But still, you can take that stuff and and trade it in and get value out of it, and then it goes back into this circular economy. And circular economy is already a hokey word. Most people haven't heard it. You know, it's. It, everybody likes these buzzwords. Everybody, li- but where's the action? Where are the companies that are actually doing these things to create this? Like the telecommunication group I talked about or the other group that's doing the benches and looking at potentially doing signs for their campus. Like put your money where your mouth is and let's go do this and understand the value of your brand. Do you want to end up on the front page of the New York Times because somebody with one of your asset tags is on 60 minutes in a pile in China? No. And most all companies that are big understand that value. But it, but it is the ones that will nick, nickel and dime and say, that's not, you know, we want to go with this group because of price. Well, good. We're interviewing you just as much as you're interviewing us. And that's
1: not who we're looking for. I just have to say it. What, what would we do without the New York Times?
0: <laughs> USA Today. Phil, Why did you go to business Telegram. school? <sighs> Why did I go to business school? I I went to, quite honestly, because because John, the guy I told you about, paid for it. Okay. is my totally transparent answer. I always thought going to business school would be cool.
1: Was it a value add? It was,
0: I was a shitty student. I was, a, oh, I'm dyslexic. And so, you know, I love podcasts and people are like, why do you love podcasts so much? I'm like, cause I can't read, you know? <laughs> it's a lot easier for me to listen, but I was a terrible student. I, I applied to one school, the University of Kansas, which love their basketball team, but I'm not sure it was the hardest to get into. I was surprised I got in transferred to TCU only through help and got out of college as quick as I could and never thought I would ever be back in a classroom. But after spending, you know, a decade out working and going through this process of feeling like I, I built a business and it's like, man, now the the kind of fundamental, like I know how to look at a P&L and understand these are our costs, this is our revenue, bottom line but how everything connects from the balance sheet and the way everything moves and how to look at stuff and how to properly classify things. And, you know, there was a bunch of stuff in there that I'm not as interested in yeah. ratios uh, and whatnot for publicly traded companies. I'm not a stock guy besides our stock ELA. I buy
1: it. <laughs> um, but still not sure if we can say that. <laughs> yeah.
0: Still not sure. We're just it. going to Robin But no, I, I liked business school a lot because I got, to meet some great people. Yeah. And there's a good network out of it. But, you know, it but was- Somebody's
1: lo- like on the fence. Are they going for the network? Or should, if they're going, they should be super niche about why they're showing up or- So I think I think I was in a different position because I'm the
0: president of a qu- company, air quotes, so people don't think I'm a douche. I hate saying that word even. But I'm the yeah. president of a company. Most people who are there are working at Coca-Cola or Pioneer Natural Resources or you know, uh, Ericsson and an MBA is going to get them a raise. An MBA is going to get them to the next position. At some point in these big companies, you have to have an MBA to be considered for a certain role. A lot of times MBAs right now, if you're looking through a stack of documents for a certain role, it might be MBAs over here, non-MBAs over there, like a college degree. So for people who are working their way up, you know, within companies and organizations like that, I think it makes a ton of sense. For me, it was about the network and that I had somebody footing the bill. Yeah, but I, I certainly learned a lot from it. I liked it a lot. It created additional discipline. I had a kid during it. You know, you got to manage your time better, and it puts things in perspective when you get done. But it wasn't as big a thing for me, quite honestly, as I think it would be. And I, we've got some buddies who are in it right now, doing the same program I did. Yeah, um, but. And there's a lot of value in certain areas, but it was about the network. It was about the challenge. And it was more than anything for me, how wild it was, how much I wanted to do it and how much I wanted to learn in certain areas because I'd seen all these things on the ground. And so I want to see how they're taught versus how I think about them. And can I think about them differently? Classes people hate like OB, you know, um, what does it even stand for? behavior, yeah, operational behavior. Um, yeah. I don't even remember. But uh, but like that uh, thinking about how to manage employees and how because everything was me managing every single employee. So how do I do a better job of putting things in buckets and delegating leadership and giving people a little bit more rope the way I was given? Because a business can only grow so big if one person has to be a part of everything. Right. And it's still hard for me today having four different companies and a couple hundred employees. Like, I want to be involved in everything. And then when I step back and try not to be, and these little mistakes happen, it makes me, it pulls me back in. We're redoing our offices right now. And I tried to step back and let somebody else decide on our flooring in the office area. I put some tile down. Not good tile. (laughs) So John, (laughs) John walks in and he's like, and I literally thought about it all day. And all night, and the next morning, I'm like, I'm not gonna let the tile bother me. I have so much bigger fish to fry. It's just the tile in our office. I delegated it out. Not gonna worry about it. John walks in. He's like, what "The fuck's that tile?"
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> and I'm like, I knew you were gonna say that. Yeah, it's like it's perfect for a warehouse. Nice and white. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but still, I don't even care. We, you know, I yeah. don't care. But it, it's hard. It's hard to delegate. It's hard. It's hard to find good people. And that's one of the things you've taught me through Culture Index and a lot of these tools that we utilize. It's not, they're not going to do the job for you, but how do we whittle out uh, enough applicants to really talk to great people? And, you know, John and I are both big on just going with our gut. And it's nice to have a tool to whittle down to some good applicants and then just feel them like, just go with your gut. Yeah. And the things we do to incentivize our people in the back I talked a little bit earlier about our teams of six. Well, when you're getting paid per pallet per hour, a supervisor is not as important because if somebody's moving slow, the other five folks want them to move faster because they're getting paid per pallet per hour. If somebody doesn't show up for a couple of days, go find another team. And if you're not, if you can't find another team, you don't have a job. And so we try and structure the business in certain ways that are not typical of of how businesses like ours are run. We want to have these little micropods of processing and receiving and things where, you know, we we give people some of that same flexibility to do well or to not do well. We're always looking to bring new people in, give them opportunities. You know, I read something and I don't think it's popular. I think it was by Reed Hastings or someone along those lines, but people call a business a family and it's not. It's yep. a team. Yeah, And you always want the best players on your team. Yeah. And there are people in my family who I wouldn't necessarily have working in my business. There are people at my business I consider family and have been with me for a long time. And I don't think they'll ever lose their spot on the team because they bring it every day. And so, you know, but it is a team. It's not a family. We're not here at all. It's, you know, we're not running a charity. We got to make money. We got to be able to pay everybody's bills. We got to pay our overhead. There's a lot that has to be done. And we're always looking for the best players to put on the field.
1: All right. We're going to bring it down with some few personal. I started this question yesterday. Um, Is there an experience that when you were a child or growing up that happened in your life that you think changed the trajectory of your life, like the first thing that comes to mind? Yeah. I mean. Uh, sorry, mom and dad,
0: uh, uh, my parents divorce probably would be the biggest because it kind of just, it changed a lot. It wasn't my parents actual divorce. That was the biggest impact. It was more the ripple effects of things that happened from there. You know, like I became best friends with a guy, Johnny Coons, who we know, you know, and Johnny taught me a ton of work ethic that I didn't have. And, uh, you know, my dad wasn't there and dad, you know, you're great, but, There were just ripple effects from my parents' divorce that make you grow up a little bit quicker. You know, make, you know, I was 16, I had a 14 and 12-year-old sister and feeling like you got to be there for them. Feeling like, you know, certainly not the man of the house by any means, but but it just, more responsibilities put on you than had that not happened. So that obviously comes to mind. Yeah,
1: no, it's usually something, you know, big like that. And I realized the more I talk to people, there's usually something that happened early in life that kind of shook things up a little bit. Um, Mine was when my dad decided to go to medical school after being a lawyer for 13 years, that changed everything. (laughs) All right. Do you have a, uh, like a morning routine or something that, you know, you start your day with? Man,
0: I used to. So I used to, get up early every day before I had kids and I would go about 3 days a week to McDonald's and get focused food for our leaders in the back give them their McDonald's and just kind of be at the office to start the day yeah now with covid and everything and having two little girls my morning revolves a little bit more around helping them and you know I I wake up early most mornings and I listen to a podcast or do something I should probably go exercise but I don't but my routine now is different and I love the business as much as I ever have and what we're building. But, you know, we struggled and tried for a long time for kids and went through a lot of five miscarriages. And so like these little girls are so precious to me and like having the time with them in the morning when they get up. Yeah. So if I used to leave at seven, you know, now it's eight and, you know, my routine, you know, I usually get on the phone or whatever, headed to the office, but but they're definitely the priority now versus getting out before kind
1: of I've had time with them. I love it. What's the best advice you've ever been given? I don't know who gave
0: me this advice or it's not even advice. It's the most cliche term ever, but it's something someone said to me that I always say, and anybody that works with me would tell you, you know, I always say, you know, how do you eat an elephant? Yeah. One bite at a time. You know, but it's so and it wouldn't be that impactful to me if the things that I ask my people to do, the things that John asked me to do, the things that our organization tries to do aren't so big, like and and it's not big from a financial perspective. It's not big from a like grind it out. Like it's like, wow, that's that's a big idea. You think we can do that? You think we can hit those numbers of cable box to an hour? You think we can hit those you know, you think we can build a plant to process coax wire? And I have to have people that work with me who understand that when we talk about these big goals, you're able to to just take them one bite at a time and work your way through them. I'm not saying this huge thing has to be done this week. Oh. I'm saying this is our plan. This is our goal. And it might sound unattainable, but if we just take one bite at a time, we'll get through the elephant.
1: All right. Last question. If you had a billboard along 75, busiest part of 75, you owned it and you could put anything on it, what would you put on it?
0: You know, the funny the funny thing is, is that you think about that and it's like, is it something about work? Because I joke about putting up a bill, billboards for different stuff for work. <laughs> is it something sell about- Sell us your scrap. Yeah, sell us your scrap or something like that. But like- you know, I think it'd be something like try and do something, one thing that matters every day. One thing. I mean, that's that's what I tell myself professionally. I have a turn that I make when I leave the office every day on the Luna right under George Bush. And I tell myself if every day I do one thing that moves the needle a little bit, it doesn't have to be monumental, it doesn't have to be land a huge comp, but something that is going to happen every day after day after day to make this company better. If I do one of those every day, it's 250 things a year that are making this company better. And there's gonna be plenty of days you do multiple of them. But if you start going through days, weeks, and months in the motions and you don't focus on at least one impactful thing a day, next thing you know, six months goes by and you're just doing the same thing. And so I challenge myself every day to at least do one thing that makes a long-term impact. And that might be you know, changing the uh, HR payroll or, you know, uh, getting rid of a vendor that does, you know, but but something that tomorrow has an impact on the business and a week from now does too. Um, you know, and it, it might be having a conversation with somebody, a tough conversation about where they stand and, and where they need to go. Or it might be having a conversation about somebody about how great they're doing that I've been meaning to tell them. But those things have lasting impressions and whether it's cutting costs on stupid things like your supplies or having tough or great conversations or, uh, you know, getting with a customer about something or coming up with an idea that can be super exciting. You know, I guess my billboard would say, do one thing important or valuable or needle moving every day, whether that's personal, professional, whatever.
1: Dude, this has been awesome. It's been fun. Thank you very much. Yeah.
0: I no, it's been great. I love talking through it. I'm sorry it's not about real estate for all you guys out there.
1: Dude, this was real estate. Fa- real estate. You can <laughs> only get so much of it. This was fascinating. We've talked a lot, but I I learned more today about your business than I ever have.
0: Well, you know where I am. If you need more.
1: Hey everyone, it's Chris here again. Thank you so much for joining me on this journey. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, leave a five-star rating or write a quick review. Thanks again, and I'll see you on the next episode. Chris Powers is the founder and CEO of Ford Capital LP. All opinions from Chris and guests of the Fort Podcast are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of Ford Capital LP. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for real estate or investment decisions. The Fort with Chris Powers is produced by Straight Up Podcasts.